You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Canada. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. So, happy to be here. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 1, and as you do that, I'd like to make a couple of more comments. I would like to express my appreciation to Westside. Um, I was up for a meeting, I don't recall the month, I think November, I didn't check, but I was up for a meeting uh, with our board and, and their board. And I was, I found myself respecting what they were doing and at the same time wondering how they're doing it because I would think it would be a difficult thing. The way life works, if you don't know this yet, when you get older like me, I'm 65 now, you you don't like change so much unless it's on your terms, uh, that might be okay. Uh, but but you, you don't want to start over in, in life. It, it feels difficult to do so. And, and for Westside, to be considering gifting this building uh, to our church was stunning to me. Um, there, there was so much class in the room as, as we met, I found myself sitting there thinking, I hope if I'm ever in that situation, I'd hope to have half the class they had, and I'd feel very good about myself. Uh, their desire to see a church here just impressed me. Um, it, was, it was humbling. And so I, I'm sure it's difficult uh, to go through this. I never did it, so I don't know exactly what it's like, but I... It looks to me like it'd be a difficult thing. And, and so I want you to hear my thanks for this indescribable gift. I mean, Jesus is the gift of all gifts, but this is quite, quite the gift. And we trust we will steward well uh, the gift that you've given to us. If I could offer a couple of words of encouragement to you. So I'm thanking you. And then I want to say to those of you from Westside who are here, I want to say thank you for giving us the opportunity to be your church. I know we're different than what you experienced, and I know change is hard. But I appreciate you taking the opportunity to be here and to see what our church is about. And here's what I'd like to encourage you to do. I'm saying this solely on my own Volition, uh, Josh and Tim haven't asked me to say this. When I stepped into Living Hope in 1993 as a senior pastor, we just come through a difficult season and the church was not well. And so I said to the church, this is a great time to think about whether you want to be here or not. If you're here, I'll be here. And if you leave, I'll leave too. But I'm, I'm here so long as you're here. And because I was a total rookie, I mean total, uh, I said, would you give me six months? I, in other words, don't make, a, don't make a decision based on one meeting or two. Could, could you give me six months? Because after six months, you'll know what you have. 
on your hands. And I'd, I'd like to invite the folks who were part of Westside to do the same thing. I'd like to encourage you to give it six months so you know what you have, so you know what, what you're working with. And I'd like to encourage you, Josh, in his announcements, mentioned their tag groups. I'd like to encourage you to throw yourself in for six months. In other words, there's all the difference between going to a swimming pool and sitting on the edge in a chair and getting wet, right? You can say you were at the pool, you sat there in a lounge chair, you were at the pool, but you got to get in to enjoy the water. And so I want to encourage you to consider just being a part of the church. Drop in to the prayer meetings. Drop into the small group meetings. I'd like to encourage you to give it a shot. I can give you one guarantee. It'll be different than what you experienced before, and you'll find we're passionate about Jesus. And so if you're passionate about Jesus as well, and I don't know you all, so I, I, I'm not assuming anything. If you're passionate about Jesus, I think you'll find it feels like family. And I hope you're passionate about Jesus. In the sermon I want to preach this morning, I'm hoping to inspire you to be even more passionate about Jesus. Regarding sovereign grace, I'd like to mention we have an Emerging Nations newsletter and you might have the link to that. You can get it on the Sovereign Grace website. This newsletter allows you to see what Sovereign Grace is doing beyond North America. And I'd like to encourage you to look into what's taking place through Sovereign Grace because we're quite influential around the globe. I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying it because it matters. We want the glory of God to cover the face of the earth. And so we're invested in a number of countries in a number of ways. And I'd love for you to be learning about that. So the Emerging Nations newsletter would be wonderful. And Josh mentioned our music. We, we, our music is, is written so we can sing sound doctrine to God and to one another. And one detail about our music, and again, not to pat ourselves on the back, just to inform you, uh, in the top 2,000 songs, worship songs currently, we have 20 songs there, which is a decent number, but, but here's what uh, strikes me as ironic, 12 of them are Spanish. Uh, so the influence that we have abroad is, is considerable, and it's, a, and it's a good thing. So that's a little bit about Sovereign Grace and my encouragement and thanks to Westside. Let's read Ephesians 1, 3 to 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And my apologies for stopping mid-sentence because if you know your Bible, this is just half of one long glorious sentence. But I'll conclude my reading there. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. A clear definition of the gospel 
is of the utmost importance to Christians. We must have, I say, a crystal clear understanding of the gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. And when we refer to gospel, we're talking about the good news regarding Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is for us good news, and we love this good news. We cannot afford to get this good news wrong. When the Apostle Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, he uses shockingly strong language to communicate his concern and his precise point to the churches in Galatia. Galatians 1.8, Paul writes, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. You might know the word accursed means anathema or damnation. And notice the entities. Paul says even if we, uh, in the immediate context of this letter, we know at the end of chapter 6, Paul mentions Tychicus as a partner, but we also know Timothy spent time in Ephesus. He's saying we, if Paul, if I myself come to you, or if one of my ministry partners comes to you and shares a different message, ignore it. Ignore it. Because it's a wrong message. I've given you the true gospel. Pay no attention. And notice an angel from heaven. I've never seen an angel. I've talked to folks who say they have. I tend to be the skeptic, but but they say they have. Um, An angel shows up to me. I'm probably going to be impressed. At least in the Bible, whenever that happened they seem to generally be stricken with fear and fall down. That that seems to be the norm, which is why I'm skeptical about folks who say they've seen angels because they didn't fall down, they weren't scared. I'm just a little not sure about that. An angel from heaven. We know one-third of the angels fell, and two-thirds of the angels stayed true to God. So if you would hear angel from the devil's side, you'd say, oh, get it. Paul says, angel from heaven. If an angel from heaven appears to you with a message, and if it doesn't correspond with the gospel we preach, ignore it. It's false. I find that stunning. Paul says, me, myself, or an angel from heaven, ignore it because it's not the true gospel if it's different, contrary to what we preached to you. So, We must have clarity on exactly what the gospel is. Well, then, what's a clear definition of the gospel? How would you define the word gospel? My title is the gospel in three words. My aim is to give you a handle by which you clearly can call to mind and have a grasp of the one true gospel. I read a well-intentioned pastor on Twitter recently who said the gospel is Jesus is Lord. That's also three words. Uh, Jesus is, is Lord, which is a true statement. Jesus is Lord. He is Savior and Lord. He cannot be divided. You can't have Jesus as Savior without having him as Lord. He is one. And so this, this uh, author said, uh, Jesus is Lord. And I read it and thought, false. 
Jesus as Lord might be terrible news to you. It isn't necessarily the good news of the gospel. I had a conversation with a family member who used to be a pastor, and he was concerned to have a definition of the gospel that included our repentance. We do repent, and we do believe. But that's not a good definition of the gospel either, because the gospel is a historic act of God. So J.I. Packer, in his wonderful book, Knowing God, I would encourage you to read Knowing God. It's the one book from the last century that I think could be around a couple hundred years from now and, and still be bearing fruit if Jesus did not return. And I should mention, I tried to read Knowing God twice in my life, and I bogged down. Uh, the third time, Somehow lights came on, and I found it wonderful. So if you, if you bog down, I'm saying stick with it, give it a go. Uh, it is a wonderful book to read. Read it a chapter at a time. It's not a novel. Each chapter was actually a magazine article. My mistake was I was trying to read it like a novel, and that didn't serve. But here's what Packer says, and this is a source of my title. Where I asked, says Jim Packer, to focus... The New Testament message in three words, my proposal would be adoption through propitiation, and I do not expect ever to read a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. So my aim this morning is to pound these two words into your head. The words are adoption and propitiation, so that Your heart is warm toward God because you and I can be inclined to have hard thoughts about God. We go through something difficult, we think he doesn't care about us. We don't think he's on our side sometimes as we go through situations. And the Bible assures us again and again he is. But I say that we can have hard thoughts about God. So I have two simple points. Point one will be adoption and point two will be propitiation. Here's adoption. What is it? What is adoption? I have two definitions for you. I want you to note that adoption is an act of God. It's important to grasp. The Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible said, theologically, it's the act of God, which I pointed out to you, by which believers become members of God's family with all the privileges and obligations of family membership. Uh, British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said it is that judicial act of God by which he confers or bestows upon us the status or standing of children. So to adopt then is to take one into relationship by personal choice. The one doing the adopting brings someone into a personal relationship. So It's an act of God. God adopts us into his family, and this should lead us to consider, well, before I was adopted into the family of God, where was I? What was my life like? Paul will explain this in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, which is just a little bit later in this letter. He writes, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were all once there. K. 
carrying out the desires of the body and mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were sons, but we were sons of disobedience. We were children, but we were children of wrath. And then in Ephesians 2, 4, Paul is going to go on and say, but God, being rich in mercy, but God acted and dealt with these rebels. God intervenes by calling us. He regenerates us. He justifies us. And he adopts us into his family. God becomes our father. I know the word father can mean different things for those of us who did not have an effective dad, or even worse, if it was an abusive father. I know father might not be a comforting word, but the father of the scriptures is merciful, perfect, and infallible, and he's faithful. He is the father par excellence. A human illustration would be our adoption of our son, Matt. Matt was six. When we adopted him, he was without a family. Uh, parental rights had been terminated. I should mention we had done foster care for about 10 kids and were just getting ready to end when Matt came along. And Matt captured our hearts because he was able to smile. And a lot of the kids we had had in our home were simply angry at the world and, and smiles were not to be found. Matt showed up with a smile. We fell in love and we adopted him. Matt will never know his birth dad. Three men were named, but none of them were by test the dad. So I'd like to make it clear that Matt six, we chose him and we adopted him into our family. Matt had literally nothing to do with that act of adoption. Literally, he smiled, but he had no choice in the act. And it's still one of our favorite memories to recount going to the courthouse and going through the adoption process with the judge on Christmas Eve about a year later. We loved Matt. We treated him like our own. We had three by birth. But in no way could it be said Matt chose us like Matt adopted himself. In no way could you say that with any degree of accuracy. God adopts us into his family just like we adopted Matt into our family, and we're glad we did. Well, then, if we're a Christian, how should we think of ourselves now? We might think of ourselves as followers of Jesus, or we might say, I'm a disciple. We might use the word Christian to to describe ourselves, but there is perhaps a richer way to describe our status. And I'm going back to J.I. Packer again, who says, what's a Christian? question can be answered many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. Adoption is a family idea. We're in family now. It's a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge, it's a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. There are at least two reasons adoption is precious. Adoption is precious because it means we're loved by God. This is, I think, incredible. Uh, we, We might 
we might today think, well, it's reasonable that God would love me. I'm, I'm a reasonable, decent person. We might not be surprised by this, but given our knowledge of our status in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, where even if you became a Christian at the age of four and you never knew sin in your life, nevertheless, before that, you're in that category. Uh, you are disobedient and, and you are rebellious to be loved by a perfect holy father is astonishing. Uh, One might say not logical because why would God fall or point his love toward us? We were rebels, enemies, lovers of self. Now we're loved by God. So verse four, in love. Don't miss this love. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Notice it's not all of humanity. This is personal. It's persons who are adopted by God. And then how shall we measure this love of God? We survey the wondrous cross, which includes propitiation. We'll get to that in a bit. And we ponder our sonship, which includes our adoption. So in 1 John 3, 1 we read, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So we sing this song. Could we would think the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made where every stalk on earth a quill and every man ascribed by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Perhaps perhaps the best image of the love of the father in the Bible is the story of the prodigal son. We think of the prodigal son, typically, I would suggest, we major on the prodigal, and, and understandably so. And... Uh, More recently, Tim Keller wrote a book where he mentioned the self-righteousness of the older son. And so we can profitably study the parable and learn about the risk and danger of self-righteousness in our lives that we see in the older son. But what I want to say about the parable of the prodigal of the lost, uh, lost son is don't lose sight of the father. Don't miss the father. Because there we see the love of God the Father The son says, I've sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He has come to his senses. He gets it. He doesn't deserve to be a son. Came to his senses and it all makes sense. But the father says, bring the best robe. Bring a ring. Bring shoes. We're going to cook steak. The father rejoices. And the father overlooks past flaws, sins, and rebellion. Why? The only answer is love. A love that I, I want to say is almost irrational because the prodigal mistreated his father in every way. The father rejoices over us. So Zephaniah 3, 16 and 17, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. He quiets us with his love, but he's exalting over us with loud singing. When one sinner comes to Christ, heaven rejoices. A party is commenced. 
The love of God for his children superabounds and overflows. He isn't therefore disappointed with us. Romans 8.1 tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. That's hard to get our minds around because we know as we interact with people, we know what it's like to leave someone down to disappoint them. And we know what it's like for someone to be upset with us because we let them down. It's easy for us to transition that to our view of God and think, I let God down. I I did something. There's something I did I shouldn't have done. And he's surely disappointed. But that's not the description in the Bible. The description in the Bible is we're in Christ. I'm not saying sin doesn't matter. That's for another time. Sin does matter. But God's fundamental position, his relationship to us, is rejoicing over us and shouting over us to such an extent that it can be said there's no condemnation. You and I know what it's like to encounter condemnation from others. We know what that's like. Someone being upset with us. That's not our Heavenly Father. That's not our position as we are in Christ. This is crazy, lavish love. And it overflows and abounds. Notice he's shouting over you loudly, loud singing. There's not reluctance in his heart towards you. It's glorious. I, I find this amazing. So the cross matters and adoption is precious because it gives us assurance of our salvation. That's what sonship does gives us assurance of our salvation. Our assurance is assuredly and decidedly not located in anything we do. That's not our assurance. Our assurance is vertical. It is in our God. Because we didn't adopt God, God adopted us. We received, verse 5, adoption as sons. Granted, we received and we believe, but adoption, like our salvation, belongs to God. It's an act of God, where he brought us into his family. So verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's not to our praise. It's not about us. It's not to the praise of our wise decision to follow Jesus. It's to the praise of his glorious grace, and grace makes us sing. So the apostle John says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. doesn't have to do with us, rather, but of God. You say, but I decided and chose. I say, yes, you did. But before that, God moved and God acted decisively. The scriptures assure us that God is at work in his children and he will hold us fast. So let the word of God speak truth to your minds and hearts about this assurance. Here's John 6, 37 to 40. All the Father gives me, says Jesus, will come to me. But whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. But Jesus is never going to reject, is what this says. I'll never cast us out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Jesus could say he would lose none that had been given to him, even though one of his 12 disciples, Judas, did walk away, did forsake Jesus. We could easily say without grace in our lives there, we might go. You might worry 
that you are like Judas. You might worry that you don't have grace in your life. You might wonder if he has called you, if he's adopted you. Well, verse 37, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. It's fairly simple. On our end, the question is, have we come to Christ? Have we responded to him? Are we all in with Jesus for his glory? Jesus says further in John 10, verse 27 and following, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. So you don't have a Christian who isn't following Jesus. Jesus says, my sheep follow me. It's because they love him. They want to be with him. I give them eternal life, Jesus says. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Well, what then of those who fall away from Christ? Or what about the warnings in the Scripture? I maintain the warnings are real and true, but the words of Jesus are eternal and true. A true Christian may stumble, but there is by grace a return. So G.I. Packer again says, <coughs> excuse me, Christians may act the prodigal, but God will not cease to act the prodigal's father. I want to remind you to pray for the prodigals in our midst. I don't know all of you, but we have a prodigal currently. And I want to say that one puts 1,000 to flight and two puts 10,000 to flight. I want to encourage you, if you have a prodigal in your family, I want to encourage you to pray to lay hold with another of the promises of God and pray for them. The lights need to come on, and God's the one who acts decisively. And so we pray to a God who is able to act in their life by whatever means he wants, but we seek to do our end. So we seek to move earth for sure, but we also seek to move heaven. If you find yourself with a prodigal at the moment, I want to exhort you to keep on praying. Do not give up hope. Plead for their souls. It isn't over until it's over. And until that time, we have hope. And it can look like they're a long ways off. Don't have time to tell you a story of our current senior pastor. They can look a long ways off. But God can act. And God can overcome that because nothing is too hard for him and nothing is impossible for him. So do not lose heart if there's a prodigal in your family. So as we consider this, this matter of not being a Christian, we call to mind the parable of the four soils in Mark chapter 4. The seed is sown, but it lands in different places, and we see how the condition of the heart matters tremendously. First, there's a path, but birds devour the seed. That's Satan, Jesus says. There's rocky ground where, where it springs up with joy, endures a little while, but there's no roots. Trials and persecution comes, and that person does not endure. And then there's seed that goes among the thorns, and thorns choke it out. Jesus says that's cares of life. That's riches. It's desires. And then there's seed thrown, that's sown into the good soil, where the word is heard and accepted, and it bears fruit through endurance. So R.C. Sproul, theologian, says, so the old axiom in Reformed theology about the perseverance of the saints is this, if you have it, that is, if you have genuine faith and are a state of saving grace, you'll never lose it. If you lose it, you never had it. Somewhat simplistic, but it brings clarity to our view of what happens when someone seems to fall away. Because we're family, Born into newness of life as sons, we find a desire within to please our Heavenly Father. 
We find a desire within to follow Jesus. If you're in a season of doubt, the whole question in view is, which way are you facing? Are you facing toward Jesus, or is Jesus of no import to you? I exhort you to look to him, because he is faithful and true, and he gives us life. So we sing this song. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. That the goodness, like a fetter, by my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. So our adoption is precious. How'd it come to be? Well, the other key word in our three-word definition of the gospel is propitiation. It's adoption through propitiation, point two. Let's consider the word propitiation. The word itself appears only four times in the New Testament, Romans 3.25, Hebrews 2.17, and 1 John 2.2 and 4.10. But the idea runs all the way through the New Testament. In our text, in verse 7, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood. His blood is of absolute necessity. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The problem, as we read in Ephesians 2, we're sons of disobedience, we're children of wrath. We're all in that camp. How then could we be adopted into God's family? Because God is holy, holy, holy. John Stott puts the question this way. How can the holy love of God comes to terms with the unholy lovelessness of man. The answer is found in substitutionary atonement. In my place, condemned, he stood. The answer is the cross of Christ. So listen to these glorious words from Dr. Cranfield's commentary on Romans. He says, God, because in his mercy he willed to forgive sinful men, and mercy is not deserved, right? Mercy is unearned. So when God chooses to give us mercy, it wasn't that that was owed to us. He did not need to give us mercy. God, because in his mercy, he willed to forgive sinful men and being truly merciful, willed to forgive them righteously, that is, without in any way condoning their sin, purposed to direct against his very own self in the person of his son, the full weight of that righteous wrath which they deserved. Propitiation means to appease an offended person. The wrath of God, the Bible says, is now satisfied. We are saved by God from God because in his holiness he could not merely look the other way and say no worries. It would not be just for God to do that. We were, by nature, children of wrath, but God saves us from himself. What is wrath? We can be confused at this point when we think about God. With wrath, we tend to think of an angry person flying off the proverbial handle or, or the person around whom we, we say we walk on eggshells. That's how we say it in the States anyway. But we very careful around this person because if you do the wrong thing, they're going to blow up. And we can have that view of God. But that's not an accurate view of, of our God according to the scriptures. The wrath of God is like this. I'm quoting Jerry Packer again. 
God's wrath in the Bible was never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. It's a fixed reality in God. It does not vary or waver. It's a fixed condition. It's a fixed reality. It's part of the character of God. In the Bible, the wrath of God refers to justice, and people choose this justice for themselves because they refuse to come to Christ. The offer goes out. As we do evangelistic work, we share the gospel freely with all. We hold it back from none. But not all come to Christ. And so we learn that every single person will receive something from God. There's either justice, which is wrath, or there is mercy. And so I... I do want to ask each of us to evaluate and examine our hearts and want to ask, friend, have you come to Christ? Jesus says he's the way, the truth, the life. He offers to us eternal life, which we experience in the life after this life, but he offers us life in this life as well. Living water, he calls it. He calls it bread. Jesus offers us this now. We're meant for it, we're wired for it, and nothing else will satisfy. People look for love in all kinds of places, and they do not truly find it. So God invites us to come to him. He cannot simply look the other way. He's both just and justifier. So God devises a plan in eternity past where we will be saved from wrath. John Stott, again, from Cross of Christ, the only way for God's holy love to be satisfied is for his holiness to be directed in judgment upon his appointed substitute in order that his love be directed toward us in forgiveness. The substitute bears the penalty. We don't. The substitute bears the penalty that we sinners may receive the pardon. Who is the substitute? It's God himself. God the judge steps down from behind his bench, comes around to the front of the bench, and takes the punishment that you and I deserved. Takes it upon himself in the person of his son. And so we read of this amazing love in Isaiah 53, 3 through 6, where we read of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This makes our hearts sing about God, same way he sings over us. So we sing, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. So how will you respond? How will you respond to these wonderful truths? The Apostle Paul wrote, the Jews demand a sign, and Greeks, or non-Jews, seek wisdom. For them, both 
the message of the cross is offensive because it says something about them, meaning there is no other way to eternal life but through Jesus. For them, the message of the cross is offensive. It's a stumbling block to us. It's the love of God on full display. It is precious. But I acknowledge the message of substitutionary atonement is often unpopular, even in the church. But for us who believe, it is life. So Paul could write in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And here it is, who loved me. Who loved me. And gave himself for me. Christian, have you been affected by the love of God? Have you been dazzled by his love? This love that shouts and sings over us. Has it captured your heart the way it's captured mine? He's everything. Again, I say to my unbelieving friend, if you're not yet a Christian, does not this love of God move you to consider following Christ? Does it not invite you to renounce sin and receive every good thing that is offered to us in Christ? Let me conclude. The gospel in three words, J.I. Packer says adoption through propitiation. In Sovereign Grace Churches, we're currently designing or redesigning our statement of faith, and we have our best minds on it, and they're writing their proposal, and then it's sent out to all the churches, and elders review the statement of faith, offer input and critique, but generally what they have sent us is, is really strong. Our revised statement of faith takes roughly, it's not in a final form yet, but it roughly takes 135 words to describe the gospel. It's theologically precise. It's wonderful. When I read it, I love it. Here's my problem, and it might be yours. I have a hard time remembering 135 words. I do. I do. I can get the gist and the essence, but I can't call it all to mind. But I can, by God's grace, remember three words. I can remember adoption through propitiation. I can call to mind that God has loved me because I know this as I'm adopted into his family. He says his affection has been fixed upon me. And if you're in the family of God, his affection is fastened on you as well. Don't forget this definition Adoption through propitiation. Isn't it odd how we can all have days as Christians where we forget God? And if we forget God, it means we forgot the gospel. And so I invite you to think and meditate on this short saying, these short three words, adoption through propitiation, because as you grasp that you've been adopted into the family of God, and as you understand how that took place, your life will be ruined and you'll be changed forever. So cherish this. You're a child of God. If you've come to him, you've been adopted. His love is fixed on you no matter what life brings, and you cannot be separated from his love. It's impossible. You're in him. He's in you. And his love is upon you. 
He does discipline us and prune us. He works in us perseverance and endurance, steadfastness, because he desires mature children. He's not really interested in children who just follow him because, like, we're in a candy store, we get whatever we want. That's not our God. Our God is at work in our lives to bring us to maturity. So he does prune us. He does discipline us. What he does is develop saints of whom the world is not worthy because they're following Christ. They might get cut in half. They might get stoned. The world is not worthy of these who follow Jesus, aware of the love of God toward them and the good news of the gospel. Cherish this. Jesus loves you and gave himself for you. He's your substitute. You're no longer a child of wrath. You're secure in his love and not your performance. You are part of the family of God if you are in Christ. And this is wonderfully good news, which we will enjoy now. And we will enjoy forever in eternity as we seek to probe the depths of the grace of God and discover it can't be plummeted. There is no bottom to it. It is amazingly deep and lavish, and we marvel at it. I'd like to ask the worship team to come forward, and I'm going to pray as they come. Well, Lord, I pray that Ephesians 1, 3 to 7 would capture our hearts. And I pray that we would have some sense, some grasp of our adoption in Christ. And I pray we'd have a sense of propitiation that was required for the wrath of God to be satisfied. Lord, I pray that we would consider Jesus, that Jesus would be our all in all. And I pray that we would follow him every step of the way. So Lord, fill us with your spirit to this end. Lead us, we pray. We pray that we would not err to the left or the right, but we pray that we would stay on the straight, narrow, difficult path, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.